Welcome to the podcast. We're street smart, business smart, all kinds of smart people share their insights into the world of marketing, career journeys, and personal growth. So sit back and prepare to get enlightened with your host, Adam Posner. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the podcast where I bring you the best and brightest from the world of business, marketing, and personal growth to help you harness your inner tenacity and drive your career forward. Super pumped to introduce my guest today, Jason Wang. And I first met Jason about a year ago through my work with Defy Ventures. And for those of you that do not know, Defy is an in-prison program where incarcerated men and women take part in a university-accredited program on well-being, entrepreneurship training, personal development mentoring, and business incubation and network development. And we'll get more into that part of the story in a little bit, but more on Jason here. He is a natural born entrepreneur. And at the age of eight, he would buy a box of 300 fortune cookies from his dad's restaurant for $7 and sell them at school for 25 cents each. And he quickly became the fortune cookie king to his classmates. And at the age of 13, he started another business that generated over 100,000 in revenue with 95% profit margin margins. Unfortunately, this business was illegal. Oh, and his teammates were fellow gang members. Yeah, seriously, real story there. Jason was finally caught at the age of 15 for a first-degree felony and was sent to prison on a 12-year sentence. And since his release, he has earned a double master's, an MBA, and an MS in international business. And I love that. That's freaking awesome. And worked as a management consultant and started several other ventures. Today, Jason is a founder and CEO of Free World, and he's here today to share his incredible story of perseverance and personal growth. Jason, welcome to the podcast, man. Hey, Adam, thank you so much for having me. This is a whole lot of fun, thanks. This is awesome, I'm so thrilled to have you here today. So why don't we jump right in? Just to give everyone a little bit of background here, let's, let's talk about your family a little bit, because a lot of people who are incarcerated, and I know this firsthand from my, my work with Defy when we do the, the Steps of the Line program, um, you know, there's a real difference in, in, in family support for those who have been incarcerated or not. Talk to us a little bit about your family structure, like how supportive they were. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, the big, big secret for a lot of people that, um, that, that are starting to learn more about the criminal justice system is that in many cases, not all, but in many cases, um, when you look at the childhood experiences for the, the guys that are in prison, um, you, you start to, to empathize on why they made the decisions that they made. And so my childhood, my childhood experience is, is an example of that. Um, so my, my parents, they were immigrants from China and Malaysia, and they came to America really looking for the American dream. Uh, they wanted the two-story house, white picket fence, um, you know, economic opportunity that they wouldn't otherwise have in Asia. And so when they came to the United States, they were extremely poor. They barely knew the language, and they didn't really know anybody. And so they had to work from the ground up. Um, my father was a gang member. Um, and, uh, he met my mom and we grew up in poverty and my dad making a ton of really bad decisions. Um, my, my dad had a really bad temper, uh, that he would normally take out on me. And this would come out in a couple of different ways. Um, in the more extreme cases, uh, he would get so mad that he would take out a butcher knife and he would chase me around the kitchen. Trying to me. Um, another time he was chasing me down with his car, trying to run me over. Um, what was pretty commonplace is, you know, when he would get really, really angry, he would put down uncooked grains of rice on the tile floor and he would make me kneel in it. Oh man. And 
those uncooked grains of rice would get so embedded in my knees that I would literally have to pry them out. Um, another time he got so mad that he stripped me down butt naked and threw me out into a blizzard in Iowa um, and would just constantly beat on me. So, so that, that was a childhood that, that I grew up in. Uh, really didn't have a whole lot of safety and security. Uh, grew up in Iowa as one of the only minorities out there. Right. And so got picked on a lot as a kid. Um, people would always call me Bruce Lee, Jet Li, and all this other stuff, which kind of worked to my, my favor in some sense. But um, I didn't really have anybody to turn to. And so by the age of 10, I had already attempted suicide three times. Um, and it, it was just, it was just real tough. Um, at the age of 11, my parents got divorced. Turns out that my dad had a wife and three kids from China that he brought over to America. Uh, age of 13, I joined a gang. And to me, the gang really represented the family that I wish I had at home. That's an um, interesting dynamic there. It's something that you're yearning for, that connection yeah. and feeling of belonging. Yeah, that feeling of belonging uh, of people that respect and, uh, and care for you. Um, and the gang leader really, to me, was more of a father figure. And he taught me things um, to, to be better at what we were doing, which was committing crimes. And um, they, were, they were terrible decisions. But at that time, you know, that, that was a family that I gravitated to. That's crazy. Now, was that gang in Iowa or was that when you moved? No, no, that, that was when I moved to Texas. Wow, that's crazy. And, and how, did, how did you get, how, how did they recruit you? Yeah, I mean, really, it started out just by partying. I mean, I was 13 years old. Um, I would steal my mom's car all the time. Um, I had a hardship license from Iowa. So you can get a license when you're 14 years old. And so wow. by the time I hit 14, I was driving around. That's and, crazy. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the reason why we got the license is because my grandma, she was 80 years old. And uh, she had a broken hip and diabetes, and my mom was working 12-hour night shifts. And so my mom would come home totally exhausted from work, and my grandma would sometimes need medical attention. And so the only other person in the household was me. And so as a young kid, I, I would drive my, my grandma to and from uh, the doctor's appointments. But uh, in my spare time, I would go out and skip school, party, and that's when I started to, to meet this group of, of uh, young kids. So, you know, obviously gangs are, 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 are not a good thing, but let's talk about what you did learn from the gang that you applied to your future, you know, where you really found those true entrepreneurship skills that you applied later in life. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of people, um, you know, don't, don't realize that gangs really operate just like businesses do. So if you look at some of the, the most well-run gang organizations, um, they have a board of directors. Uh, they have bylaws, they have sales strategies, logistics, wholesaling, marketing, uh, branding. Except that it's all legal, what you're selling. <laughs> it's what all you're legal, right? And so they, they, they run businesses with higher risk than maybe some of the other legal businesses out there, uh, and sometimes with, with much higher profit margins. So, so that is a business, and it's just directed in, in a legal way. Um, the lessons that I learned um, when I was with the gang was, was planning, uh, was strategy, uh, was logistics, um, really doing your homework on um, your future victims. And, um, you know, as I'm going through this, like, it, it's, it's terrible to talk about it in this way. Um, you know, I, I have lived over the past 15 years looking back at the things that I did uh, with this blanket of guilt because I was just a terrible person back then. 
making really selfish decisions, but doing it because I felt like, I felt like it, it was a way for me to survive. I hear you. You right. did what you had, you had in that moment. You did what you had to do to survive. It was right. a survival tactic. And and don't get me wrong, like no crime is okay. No crime is okay. There's always a victim in the end, one way or another. Right, but um, you know when when you're struggling, to put food on the table. You know it, it really drives people to do things that uh, they wouldn't normally do. Yeah, that's that's a tough one. So let's let's talk about prison for a little bit, if you don't mind. And I think it's really insightful for 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 people to understand this. So you were convicted and went to prison at the age of fifteen. Were you in juvenile or were you with the adults at fifteen? I uh, know I went to a juvenile. And then did they move you to the adult prison at eighteen? No, no. So so, but basically the background of, of the prison system is that uh, in Texas, if you're under the age of sixteen and a half, then you can be charged as a juvenile. And as a juvenile, you can go to prison. Um, the prison will hold kids between the ages of 10 and 20 years old. Um, so imagine like an 18-year-old in, in a cell with an 11-year-old. Yeah, that's, I don't even want to go there, man. Yeah, it's after, absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, you go into these facilities. Um, but as a juvenile, when they give you a sentence, you have the ability to do a minimum of three years and a maximum of the term that they give you. So an example of that is that I went in on a 12-year sentence, but my minimum was three years. And the idea is that you're a kid, you know. The, Give me a second chance. Yeah, the youth prison system is, has a real big focus on, on rehabilitation. So uh, they, they want to give you that second chance. Um, but the environment that I was walking into, I, I would say is in some cases worse than some adult prisons. Um, in adult prisons, it is more organized and systematized. So what that means is that in the adult prison, is normally segregated by race. And so you might have, um, you might have BGF, which is Black Gorilla Family. You might have AB, the Aryan Brotherhood. You might have uh, the Norteños, the Sorenos. Uh, so that's Northside Mexican as well as Southside Hispanics. Um, and, and that's normally the gang organizations that you go into and you stick to your own race. Well, in the juvenile prison population, it, it's a little bit different where it's not as much race segregated, but more on street gangs, at least in my experience. Right. And in the adult systems, they have a hierarchy, they have shot callers at every single prison that really organize and keep their, their soldiers keep uh, order. within their, their battle lines, right? So you can't just go off and start stabbing people or selling drugs to the wrong race or whatever it is. And if you do, the gang will actually uh, punish their own gang members. So they'll self-police themselves. What yeah, a, they'll self-police. With the irony, right? Yeah, exactly. Um, in the juvenile system, imagine a bunch of 16-year-olds that are angry at the world. It's Lord of the Flies. Yeah, and, and they feel like they have something to prove. So it was incredibly violent there. We had, you know, kids stabbing each other, kids stabbing the, the correctional officers. Um, but what didn't help is that there was a whole lot of corruption in the Texas Youth Commission, which is the, the prison agency that I was incarcerated at, um, that wasn't being reported. And in 2007, all that stuff finally came to light. And what they found out was that correctional officers were taking 13 and 14 year old kids, putting them into isolation cells and sexually assaulting them. And matter of fact, they even found one report of a warden who is basically the the boss of the prison. Most of the time they have a house that's right outside the prison grounds. And he would take a kid over to his house, sexually exploit this kid, and then put him back into the facility. And he's the boss, right? So like what grievances are you gonna file? Jeez. Like, who's going to hear about that issue? Um, 
So that sexual abuse was rampant throughout the facility. But not only that, they also had an 80% recidivism rate. So they weren't doing their job. They weren't doing their job to rehab. Exactly. So four out of five kids that went into the prison system would return in three years. That is ridiculous. Yeah. At a cost of $120,000. And was that a private system? No, no. It's a state-run system. Okay. Someone's still making money off it. Um, yeah, people are still making money off it. I mean, the, the good thing about prisons is that a lot of times they're in rural areas. And so the prison becomes the jobs. Yeah, it's the economy of the town. Yeah, it's the economy of the town, right? And if you're low educated, you can get a job as a prison correctional officer, uh, which pays well, has good benefits. And, right. you know, it's, it's, it's a safe job. Um, but it also costs taxpayers $120,000 to incarcerate one kid for one year. That's insane. Thousand and yeah. four out of five are coming back within three years. So That's just, crazy. So how how old how old are you when you got out? So I was uh, eighteen when I got out. So let's talk about that. You get out, you're eighteen. What happened next? So you're you're, you're fresh on the street. Was your family waiting for you? Yeah, I, I had a really supportive mother. Um, you know, I, I hated my mom all the way up until I went to prison, and a part of that is because I placed a whole lot of blame on her for not protecting me when my father was beating the crap out of me. And it wasn't until years later that I started to realize that she was scared of my dad too. But as a kid, you don't think about that, right? You're thinking, oh, it's your parents, like, why isn't my mom protecting me? Why aren't you protecting me? Um, but when I was arrested, I was arrested right in front of her, in the garage of her home. Cops pulled up, guns drawn, mm. mom came out of her bedroom, and she saw me getting arrested. And even in my lowest point, she, she fought for my innocence. She said, you've got to have the wrong kid because my son would never hurt she didn't, me. She didn't believe that you would have done that. Yeah. And um, immediately after, you know, I, I go to the jail and she pulls out her life savings, $10,000, uh, to pay for her attorney. And when I go to prison, she visits me every single weekend. Even though she was wor working a 12-hour night shift, she would drive 14 hours just to come see me in prison for two hours. Wow. And she used to always say that even though you are physically in prison, mentally and emotionally, I'm in prison with you. It's heavy. And, um, you know, every time she would come to visitation, she, her and my grandma would be crying. And I started to realize that I'm the cause of her pain. And, you know, it's because of my actions, my selfish actions, that I'm causing all of this hurt to my family, but also to the community, the victims. So that really was a changing or turning point in my life. Um, the other thing that she did was, when I was in prison, she used to send these huge packets of mail. And in the very beginning, I used to think that it was like from my homeboys or uh, some of the girlfriends that I had when I was out. Um, my mom was sending me math homework. <laughs> <laughs> she, wanted, she wanted to keep you sharp, man. She wanted to keep me sharp. She would send me books on stocks, geography, religion. She, she thought that because she couldn't physically protect me, she thought that by occupying my time, by sending me books and, and things to read, that I would be safe. And she was right. I spent the entire time reading books because my mom kept sending them over. So when I got out, my mom, she was, she was sitting at the gate waiting for me. And she was extremely supportive. So you're 18, you're 18 when you get out. Did you, did you get your GED when you were in, in, inside? 
Yeah, so so I had the the chance to get my GED. I got my high school diploma. Mm -hmm. um, I also started up a Bible uh, study class, mm -hmm. was a GED program to uh, to help the other guys get their GEDs. I'm teaching math and reading. Um, because of all the correction, uh, the corruption at the facility, uh, I had a chance to testify in front of the state senate on um, way pro-social activities or or new ways of rehabilitation that would help us. Uh, so I really advocated for college classes and vocational trades. Uh, unfortunately, none of that stuff went through. But the good thing was, when I was released. They gave me a full ride scholarship to any college in Texas. That's fantastic. That's that's it's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy how life works. So now, so now you're in school. Was it was it an away school or were you close to home? Yeah, so I was I was close to home. I, I had my pick of whatever school I want to go to. I was thinking about UT Austin, but um, I had been away from home for three and a half years, and we you lived. Want you want to be close to your mom. And so I wanted to be close to my mom. That's uh, interesting. Missed, yeah, we had missed out on all those years together. Now, did, did the other students know about your past history or, you know, did you kind of go under the radar? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, other students wouldn't know, but employers did. And, yeah, and that was to get the, jobs. Yeah, it, it was hard to get a job. I mean, first of all, I, I'm a young kid coming out of school. Um, my GED reads getting state school, <laughs> which is a prison. So. Right. So I don't have the best resume and I, I got no educate, no formalized education while I was inside the prison. I basically my high school diploma and GED were all self-taught. Um, so it was just tough getting a job because every single time I would go up, they would see my felony and they would say, hell no. Yeah. So let's talk about that. So you, you complete school, you get your master's and then what, what's next? You're trying to get a job in the real world. You're facing some struggles there. People are turning you down based on your incarceration history. What'd you do? Yeah, so, so to, to kind of rewind the clock a little bit, so I, I get released at the age of 18, and um, I, I was able to finally find a job as a server, um, but because I couldn't get any, any real job, I ended up creating my own, and so I created my first business, Wing Innovation, six months out of prison. Um, that was through a program called the Prison Entrepreneurship Program, which is kind of the predecessor of Defy Ventures, Yep. and um, they are also a shark tank for ex-felons to, to sort of legalize business. Um, so yeah, that I, I got a really great mentor, Bob Frankenfeld. He's still my friend to this day, uh, really big real estate investor in, in Dallas. And he, he was the one who really got my entrepreneurial juices flowing, uh, by, you know, making a couple of introductions and kind of guiding me along the way. Um, so I, I start my first business. Um, I'm working two or three jobs. I'm taking 21 credit hours every single semester. I graduate within four and a half years of release. Uh, with a double master's, an MBA, uh, with a concentration in finance and accounting and a master of science in international business. Um, and then it's on to the next step. Um, so, you know, I'm looking for a job. Uh, I applied to Ericsson uh, as a business analyst five times, five times before they actually said yes. And it was a, it was a lot of convincing, uh, but they gave me an opportunity, was promoted to a project manager, left that to start management consulting, um, left that to start up my next venture and then my next venture and then my next venture. And, um, you know, now I'm, now I'm self-employed and nobody's checking my background. <laughs> yeah, I love it, man. So let's talk about free world for a little bit. Why don't you fill everybody in on what the impetus was to create free world and what are you building with this company? Yeah. I mean, so, so in my opinion, the best form of rehabilitation is a living wage job. Barna. The guys that have applied to my program, 50% of them are unemployed. And if they are employed, they're working temporary positions making $14 an hour. That's not sustainable life wage. 
well, especially out here in California, you can't raise a family. You can't take care of yourself on fourteen dollars an hour. Yeah, I mean that's that's barely twenty eight thousand dollars a year pre tax. Exactly. In a forty hour week. And, and when you look at the reentry experience, depending on your crime, you can actually be barred from getting welfare, food stamps, uh, Pell grants to go to college. Like the yeah. the, the deck is hard. against you when you get out. Um, so I started to think, okay, well, what's the best way to end mass incarceration? And in my mind, if I could take 26 million ex-felons all across the United States and help them get jobs paying over 100 grand within three years of graduation from my program, that would probably be a good thing. Yeah, I think so. And um, the other thing is that it would start to shift the conversation about what people with criminal histories can do. It would be a tax savings because in California, it costs $75,000 to incarcerate one person for one year. And so far, everybody who's gone through my program has stayed out of jail and prison. They haven't gone back. That's Not amazing. only that, but you've got economic output. These guys are making on average about 60,000 their first year. Yeah, well, they could you bring to the tax room. Mm -hmm. Yeah, now, now it's added tax. Um, they're able to take care of their kids. So now you have a father in the household. Right. I mean, the trickle down, the trickle down is, is the word speak for itself, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, so this is, this is my way of ending uh, institutionalized poverty for, for this, this group of people. Um, because once, because we also teach them how to invest, how to save, how to budget, how to raise credit. It's those, those life skills that they maybe didn't learn. Some of the stuff that Defy does also, you're really teaching them how to be, you know, contributing members of, of society, how to do the stuff that you don't really, that some of us take for granted, you know, yeah. balancing a checkbook, paying your bills, um, learning how to be a productive member of society. That's, that's incredible. So what's, what's the core, the core business model that you have right now? Yeah. So, so the core business model is a, is an income share agreement or otherwise known as ISA. Um, you know, a lot of your audience is business people. So they might be familiar with a, a company called Lambda School. Lambda School is, uh, probably the most successful, um, ISA based company in the U S to my knowledge. Um, what they do is they train people to code for no upfront fee. And then once they graduate, they uh, basically are under contract to contribute a future percentage of their earnings for a set number of years. So it's the same thing for us. Um, what we've done is, first of all, we're the only company in the U.S. that's using ISAs or income share agreements um, to fund the education for specifically ex-felons. And how the program works is that we will fund their education. We will give them... Uh, $1,500 while they're in school. So that way they can go to school full time. We pay for all of their tuition. We pay for all the fees. We line them up with jobs before they even graduate. Yep. And once they graduate, they get a three month grace period or 90 days where 100% of their paycheck is 100% theirs. Um, but after that, they contribute a portion of their paycheck to help fund the next person go through school. So it's, it's all paying it forward. Yeah, it's all paying it forward. And so guys that go through our program, um, they understand what the struggle is like for them whenever they first went to prison. Now they have a real opportunity to not only do well for themselves, but also to help the next guy. And, and I think that's this is life changing stuff, man. Yeah. I mean, that must, that must, that must make you feel good, man, that you're, you're paying it forward and giving back. Plus uh, the work that you do, you know, with Defy and other organizations, absolutely incredible kudos to that. So let's switch it up a little bit. Let's, let's talk about, you know, you know, life and some of those things that you really, you know, you know, stand for. And I'll, I'll throw, I'll throw a little curveball here. What was the greatest piece of advice that you received while you were incarcerated that you apply to now every single day? The greatest advice that I got, or, or the biggest learning lesson, learning. 
is um, that I'm accountable for my past, present, and future. You know, the, the decisions that I make today are going to dictate what I'm going to do tomorrow. And until I take full accountability for that, um, I'm never going to create the future that I want for myself. Um, uh, there, there are a couple of lessons, so I'll, I'll just cut, run through like maybe two more. Um, the other one is uh, forgiveness. You don't have to physically be in prison to be in prison. A lot of us put ourselves in mental and emotional prisons. Like if you don't get that promotion, if you know, if your son doesn't get a you know, gold star, whatever it is, right? You, you start to think that, oh, maybe I'm a bad parent or maybe I'm stuck in this job forever or whatever it may be. And so we put ourselves in these, these, these prisons that, that we create for ourselves. So forgiveness is next. And then the third is um, you have self-worth. The guys that I work with have been beaten up their entire lives. They've been told that they would never amount to anything, that they're always going to fail. The prison system has told them, welcome back soon when they get released. The employers have said, we will not hire you because of your criminal background. And so it is very normal to come out and be extraordinarily depressed because there is no path for a future that you can see because everywhere you turn, you're getting told no. So one of the greatest learning lessons I had was you have self-worth. Despite what everybody else is fucking telling you, you have self-worth. And that's why I tell my guys on a daily basis. I love it, man. You're doing, you're doing great work. Jason, what, what is, what is, what is legacy? Like what, what legacy do you want to leave behind? What legacy are you building? Yeah, I, I think that, um, you know, after I committed my crime and did my time, I felt like I had this, this debt to society that I can never repay. So a lot of the reason why I do this work is it's to repay the terrible things I did in my past. Um, but the second thing is, what does a legitimate first chance look like for nearly 10% of the population that have become an underclass of American society? These are good people that have made terrible decisions. But I think that, you know, through your experience through Defy, um, and others that we've all probably done something that we could have been arrested for mm -hmm. and maybe because of the color of our skin or economic status or the zip code that we live in maybe we didn't get caught but these guys have done their time and paid for their crime but when they get released they're essentially given a life sentence because of that felony on the record yeah, they're branded so what is a legitimate first chance actually look like for 26 million americans what would it mean to actually create a living wage income where you can take care of your family, put your kids through college, move to safer, safer zip codes, you know, break this generational cycle of poverty, especially in black and brown communities, which make up the vast majority of the prison system? Yeah, that's, that's heavy, man. I mean, you're, you're definitely helping me pave the way, man. And, and certainly, you know, kudos to you on that. Jason, to this day, what would you say your greatest accomplishment is? Being a good son. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know. I love it. I mean, your mom, geez, she's been through thick and thin with you, man. God, God, God bless her. And, and Jason, you know, what, what is something that you do, I'm not going to say better than others, but what is, what is your superpower, man? What, do you, what is something that you do so well that, that you wear that cape that makes you a, super, a superhero? I think empathy, man. You know, 
doing this job, it's, it is an emotional struggle on a daily basis because of the situations that my guys begin with and then where they end with. So on, on the front end, these guys are coming to me with absolutely nothing. You know, their brothers and sisters are stealing from them. Their mom, you know, just got into a car crash and so she's in the ICU. Their best friend just got shot in a drive-by shooting. Um, you know, I empathize with that and I, I coach them through that entire process. And it, it's, it's, it's heart-wrenching. Yeah. The other day, one of my students sent me pictures of their baby who had internal bleeding in his, in his brain and said, hey, you know, I, I can't go to school uh, because I've got to take care of this. And it, it's dealing with that on, on a daily basis that's tough. Uh, on the flip side, when I see these guys, they're making 100, 100 grand. And there's this guy who sent me a text message and he said, Jason, I, I don't know how I can ever repay you. I used to be homeless, sleeping at the bus station. So that way I would make it to school every day. And now I'm working in a Fortune 500 company making 80 grand a year. And, and I feel like I have a future. Stuff like that gives me hope for the future. Jeez, love it, man. And, and last but not least, when you, were, when you were behind bars and that future looked bleak, and you were at your lowest, man. And on the flip side of it, to where we're sitting here today, you're engaged, you're happy, you're building for the future. What is that North Star? What do you look to as a sign of gratitude and to pull you up when things are not going that well? Yeah, I mean, I, I have to say my mom. My mom was, was my rock the entire time. She, she was the person that said, um, remember who you are when I was in prison and my lowest points when we had shutdowns and riots and everything else, I lost everything. She goes, remember who you are. You're my son. You know, you're a good person with a great future. And um, it, it was her belief in me that, that gave me the strength to keep going when I, when I didn't feel like I had the strength anymore. Thank you, man. Thank you for being open and vulnerable. I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I really do. And in closing thoughts here, you know, the universe has an amazing way of bringing people together. And I'm a firm believer that everyone in my life now and who I will meet in the future is supposed to be there for a reason, whether to help me directly or empower me to be a connection conduit. And Jason and I were brought together to help each other, help others in our own respective fields for our common work with Defy and prison reform. And Jason's story is incredible. And it truly is an example of not letting one, a big one, mistake define your future and the true definition of second chances. And no matter how dire a situation is, there is a way out and a positive future, and it's up to you, ultimately. It's up to you to be positive and make that difference. And I thank Jason immensely for his dedication to a most important social situation, social cause. And I thank him for being open and vulnerable and his motivation, support, and most importantly, his time. Thank you, brother, I certainly appreciate it. And Jason, thank you for joining me. Where could folks connect with you? Where could they learn more about what you're building and how you're helping others? Yeah, I mean, visit us on www.joinfreeworld.com. Um, it's got our social media links on there. You can follow us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. Um, but more importantly, um, I, I would really encourage others to explore um, what it, to explore what second chances really mean. Um, by volunteering to organizations like the Five Ventures, Prison Entrepreneurship Program, Cornbread Hustle. Um, a lot of these programs are really making a difference in other people's lives. 
um, and seeing how you can contribute and help. Because ultimately, this is an issue that affects all of us, whether or not we know it. Yep. You know, 95% of these guys that are in prison will get released at some point. So what kind of neighbor do you want? Do you want, we spend five times more on incarceration than we do on public education. You know, do you want to stop it? Do you want your taxpayers going to worthy causes rather than just warehousing human beings for a large portion of their life? And how can you get involved in help? Absolutely. And also be, be open to stepping out of your comfort zone. I mean, you and I talk about this all the time. You know, for me, one of my biggest fears ever in life was being in prison behind bars. And I've done some things early on in my life that I'm not proud of. And that, you know, for me, going back at this age and, and stepping foot in that men's prison, that was, that was a big step. Uh, and it was scary, but I did it. And it opened up my mind and my eyes. And it only encouraged me more to help out on this cause and, and work, with your, work with folks like yourself. Jason, thank you so much for your time. All right. Appreciate it. Thanks, Adam. I appreciate it. And to everyone listening, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Please be sure to follow us on all the social media channels. Link below, and I'll link you directly to Jason as well. Remember, take your online offline. Thank you for joining us, and catch us next week for another episode of the podcast. Wisdom is forever, but for us, it's time to go. Thank you for joining us. Luckily, we'll be back with our next episode jam-packed with more incredible humans. For more info, please visit www.nhptalentgroup.com.